Welcome to the public morality. By the slimmest of margins, Democrats hold majorities in both chambers of Congress. The Senate is essentially tied on paper, with Vice President Kamala Harris being the tie-breaking vote. But the Democratic Senate coalition is the very essence of herding cats. Two senators, Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Angus Keene of Maine, are independents that caucus with the Democrats. And several senators, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, represent states that are not blue, as the Democrats' gender in Washington would suggest. But Senator Manchin is seen by many Democrats as the primary obstructionist in President Biden's agenda. Is this accurate? If so, does this mean President Biden's agenda is held hostage by a single senator? Joining me to discuss where might the Democrats go from here, we welcome Professor Sarah Binder. Professor Binder is a political scientist at George Washington University and a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution located in Washington, D.C. Professor Sarah Binder, welcome to The Public Morality. Great. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to suggest a number of President Biden's more more high-profile agenda items rests in the hands of a single senator, uh, specifically West Virginia's uh, Joe Manchin, or, or is that, in your view, an oversimplification? Well, certainly Senator Manchin has an outsized role here in whether or not the Biden uh, agenda can go forward. But he's not the only stumbling block. He's he's not the only hurdle for the president and for Democratic leaders in the House and Senate uh, to grapple with, for sure. Um, we can think about Manchin in particular in, in why he seems to have such power. Um, but here's the issue, really. If it takes 50 votes on many of the issues that Democrats want to achieve, and in fact, it often takes 60 votes if there's a really, if you want to reach out and involve the Republicans, Manchin really is the 50th senator. And his policy views on many issues are somewhat at a with many of his Democratic colleagues. But we also think that several senators, Democratic senators, may share some of the apprehensions of Senator Manchin on a couple issues, but they don't need to become the lightning rods. It's really Manchin and to some extent, Senator Sinema, who've really become the very public facing um, stumbling blocks for the Biden administration. Well, well, well since you mentioned that, I uh, you mentioned um, Senator Sinema from, from Arizona, but uh, I don't necessarily see Montana Senator John uh, Tester, you know, uh, chomping at the bit for what may be perceived as a very liberal agenda. Uh, the Maggie Hansen in New Hampshire, you've got Angus King. So um, and I guess in one sense, these all these senators should be sending um, Senator Manchin, you know, gift cards or, because he's providing cover for them in a sense. Well, I think that's precisely true. I think one thing to keep in mind is we have this notion that senators come to the Senate and House members to the House with like preconceived what we call preferences, like policy views, like things they'll vote for and things they won't vote for. But in reality, that's what the legislative process is about. It's about getting senators to agree to a particular position and working out what that position is. And Manchin has been quite vocal on a number of issues about what he might support and what, what he might not support. 
Well, we don't really know for the other senators where they are precisely on many of those issues. Um, President, um, President uh, Senator Manchin uh, recently uh, wrote an op-ed piece that um, he would oppose uh, uh, for the People Act. Um, could you provide uh, like a brief synopsis of what exactly for the People Act contains and how might um, its failure, could its failure to become law impact the 2020 midterm elections? So the For the People Act uh, is a very expansive version of, of many, many priorities of Democrats having to do with the administration of elections, about money in uh, elections, a very broad swath of uh, policy policy priorities. Um, I think one uh, issue is that uh, Democrats in Manchin possibly and certainly Democrats and Republicans disagree about how important all these elements are. And Republicans have generally said they really want to wa- seem to want to w- wash their hands of it. They seem to have very little interest uh, in getting involved in issues of basically having the federal government essentially set some standard uh, to ensure equity in the in how elections run about how often early voting restrictions, um, ballots, uh, absentee ballots, and so forth. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of different provisions. In fact, bills uh, included uh, in S one. For, for sure. What will be the outcome if it's not passed, not enacted into law? The parties disagree quite a bit. I think many, many Democrats are, are quite worried uh, that it allows Republicans in Republican-led states really to limit voting rights and civil rights in a way that unduly, uh, unduly harms uh, the interests of voters. Um, whether or not that comes to pass and where it comes to pass um, obviously, that remains uh, to be seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that really is sort of the, uh, I guess, the, the, the stumbling block for, for both sides is that um, Senator Manchin um, has stressed the need for, for, for bipartisanship, um, but yet uh, sort of alluding to what you just said, the, the, the Brennan Center just, just released a study that 16 of the most restrictive voting policies that have been enacted in nine states were all passed on a strict party line vote, Republican party line vote. So it's it, so it seems that we're already in partisan territory. And uh, how 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 does Senator Manchin negotiate that conundrum? Well, I think that's what a lot of Democrats are wondering. They put precisely the finger on what you just said, which is. They look out at the Republican Party, whether in the Senate or the House or across the state, and they say, look, Republicans play hardball. <laughs> they, they push their powers as far as they can, and they don't seem to think twice about it. And so they feel that Senator Manchin is just sort of disarming. He's saying, we're not going to play that game. We want to do things in fashion. And so there's deep frustration on the Democratic side when they look and they say, look, look we're what are the prospects for bipartisanship? You're up against a party that's playing hardball. And if Democrats don't play hardball, how are you ever going to level that electoral playing field? Um, I think that's really uh, a question that uh, Senator Manchin really hasn't answered that in, per- in particular, for sure. Although he has pointed to what he calls uh, basically a revision of the Voting Rights Act. Um, although, unfortunately, that's not um, uh, 
engineered any Republican support beyond the senator uh, from Alaska, Senator Murkowski. So they are really at a, at a stalemate here, uh, both, I think, within the Democratic Party, uh, what to do about Senator Manchin, stalemate with Republicans about ever moving forward. I, I want to I quote you uh, for the piece that, that, that I read um, in, on the Brookings site. Um, you write, quote, Manchin's home style comes through clearly in his campaign ads, shooting a, a copy of the Democrats' 2010 cap-and-trade bill, riding his Harley through West Virginia countryside, blaming both parties for deadlock, but also attacking uh, Republican lawsuit to strike down the Affordable Care Act. Uh, my question for, uh, for you, Professor, is Manchin's attempts, it, it seems he's apparently trying to have it both ways, and in, in, in a sort of in a paradoxical sense, that's been really key to his election fortunes. Would that be accurate? Well, in, in many ways, yes. I, the one thing to keep in mind about Manchin is he, he grew up a Democrat. He, he is still a Democrat. I, I don't think there's a sense... I don't think people who follow West Virginia politics, there's no sense that he's like likely to switch parties to the Republican Party, even though he's surrounded back home, even in his hometown, uh, by Republicans. So there there are some sort of core Democratic commitments, right? He did vote for the uh, COVID relief plan. Uh, he has said, um, I, I give the example there about protecting the affordable Care Act is something that seems quite important to him. So there are some core Democratic Party commitments in him. However, he's in, a, in an electoral world uh, surrounded by Republicans and very Trumpian Republicans. And he has very close elections now, right? His 2018 election, there was a libertarian and a conservative, uh, a Republican. Had the libertarian, the third party not been there, it's possible Manchin would have lost. It was such a tight margin. So he's looking out at the state. He sees himself surrounded by Republicans and he wants to maintain his career. And so, yeah, he's, I think, clearly pushed and pulled. And one solution to that is to say, I'm doing this for West Virginia and I'm going to I'm going to attack both parties. Well, one, one of my takeaways um, from, from your piece um, was really what uh, my words, it was an unvarnished civic lesson in that many Democrats are, 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 are critical of, of Senator Manchin. They want the agenda move, they want the agenda move forward, while Senator Manchin is uh, trying to keep one eye on his West Virginia constituency because re-election is still a possibility. I, I think that's sort of the reality of 2021 civics. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the reality for Democrats is that for them to have a majority of the Senate and of the House, they really have to win on red territory, on Republican turf. And it leads to the sort of the end of the party being cross-pressured, right? Think about the moderates in the House who represent districts in Michigan, aren't very many of them, but who voted for Trump. And so... You end up at the edges of the party here, where if you want to have a majority, the larger your majority, the more cross-pressured those moderate members are going to be. And it's very frustrating to Democrats, right? Absolutely frustrating to Democrats. This is their moment of unified party control. It probably won't last very long. And you can surely understand the frustrations within the, from Manchin's own colleagues, who understand their only majority, well, obviously first because of the Georgia senators, 
but also because of Manchin. And without Manchin, they're in the minority party with very little influence, really. Well, and, and that really uh, I sort, of, sort of gets at the crux of your argument for, for Brookings is that, I mean, you can't have a, this is a, the, probably the most razor-thin majority one could have without being in the minority. And that's, and that's sort of the reality of our democratic republican form of government. Yeah, and in in particular, over the last decade, these majorities have gotten, especially in the Senate and the House, smaller and smaller and smaller. And so we're so far from a world where we have big, big cushions, right? Even I right, think about the cushions just a decade ago uh, that came in with President Obama in 2009, right? There were 60 Democratic senators. Now, they weren't all liberal senators, Number 16, Ben Nelson from uh, Nebraska, Joe Lieberman from Connecticut. But that was a 60-vote majority. Um, we're so, so far uh, in the world of the Senate and the House from that type of robust uh, parties. It's just neck and neck, highly competitive parties, and you don't know how long control is going to last for your party. I'm speaking with George Washington University political science professor and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, Sarah Binder, and we're discussing uh, the tenuous nature of the Democratic Party's coalition, uh, specifically in, in the Senate, but, but it also could uh, pertain to the House as well. Um, Professor Binder, what was the original purpose of the filibuster? So the filibuster was not part of the Constitution. It was not part of the original rules of the Senate. It occurred, as best we can tell historically, a little tinkering of an old set of rules, and they did away with the one rule that in the future the House used to cut off debate by majority vote. So by the 1820s and 1830s, as debate kicks up in the Senate, much of it about abolition of slavery, but also about just party partisan issues, senators realized there is no rule in the Senate rule book that would allow a majority to vote to cut off debate. And that, of course, is what a filibuster is, right? The inability to get to, to a vote. It's the origins of the rule or the ability to filibuster. Uh, to some extent, it's historical accident. And both parties begin to take advantage of it. Certainly uh, on the, the Democratic side in the South, um, the old Democratic South, uh, you have John C. Calhoun, uh, a leader of the segregationist, uh, sort of weaponizing uh, the ability to talk to defeat measures preferred uh, by the Northern Whigs. We are the parties using it. The Whigs versus the Democrats were fighting for very partisan issues, uh, um, building roads and bridges and canals and so forth. So its roots are in the late, uh, sort of just before the Civil War, uh, and it proves very, very hard uh, to get to get rid of it. It, no, when, when one thinks, uh, when one hears filibuster, uh, certainly in a positive sense, we tend to think of uh, Jefferson Smith and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where the lone senator holds the floor as long as they can. Um, for the most part, that's not how, in recent history, how the, how the filibuster has been invoked, right? Is that correct? Correct, right? We, now we look back and we say, oh, those we, we call talking filibusters. Uh, uh, now we sometimes say, well, now we have silent filibusters. You don't actually need to go to the floor or you just have to threaten to filibuster. 
And that is often sufficient uh, uh, to basically defeat what we call, we take a cloture vote. Senate takes a cloture vote. And if you can't get 60, the filibuster wins uh, and the Senate typically moves on to other issues. Um, you sort of touched on this. Now I want to come back to it. Uh, I, I, I recall um, in what, um, 2005, 2006, um, Republican Majority Leader Bill Frist was threatening the nuclear option because Democrats, he felt Democrats were misusing uh, the filibuster. Correct me here on my history because I'm, I'm, I'm uh, just uh, off, you're good, top, you're good. <laughs> off the top of my head. And then 2013, back when the Democrats had a majority, you had um, uh, Democrat Harry Reid actually did away with large parts of the filibuster uh, for executive branch appointments and judicial nominations, with the exception of the Supreme Court, and I remember Mitch McConnell warning him that you will rue that rue the day that this has ha- happened. So I guess my question to you, um, given um, where we are with with this whole filibuster process, is is Senator Manchin protecting something where the cows have already left the barn? I mean, I mean. How do you see that? So uh, I think if we if we step back and look at like the history of the Senate and history of efforts to make the place majority rule, that's the direction the Senate is moving, right? We've had the cloture rule, right, for cutting off debate. We've had that since 1917. And it's not very often, but we do have changes to the cloture rule, right? The 2013 one you just you just mentioned. And all those changes make it easier for majority to cut off debate, right? And now, such as now we can't, there's no more filibustering of of nominations at all. Um, So the movement is towards majority rule. And so when people like Manchin or senators say, look, I want to keep the filibuster because it protects my ability to fight for West Virginia and so forth, well, that's certainly true. It's certainly true that individual senators have a lot of power, regardless of whether they're in the majority or the minority. Individual senators do have a lot of power because they can threaten to filibuster. But the larger movement here is towards majority rule. And obviously, we don't know when or under what circumstances it will eventually occur. But my sense is, as you suggested, that the, the horses may be out of, out of the barn, that as the parties become more polarized and more intent and disagree with, with each other, each party wants some advantage in order to make major policy change rather than to have it stalemated uh, on the floor. Uh, it appears to, to some uh, now, certainly not all, but it appears to some and that, especially for Democrats um, in 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 the Senate, le- maybe less so in the House, but in but but in both but in both both sides, that keeping a coalition together is is akin to herding cats, whereas uh, they see the, their Republican colleagues have a much easier time uh, keeping votes together. What is the reality there? Uh, is that just a misconception? Or how do you see that? So it's certainly the, when a party is in the opposition in the minority party, it's it's easier to stick together, right? Because you're not being held. The voters don't typically hold the minority accountable for stalemate, right? They blame the majority for failing to get that stuff done. So certainly in today's Senate when we're or the House when we're looking at the Republicans, they certainly do look quite unified. 
But I would just to remember what it was like during the four Trump years with the Republican majority in, in the Senate. If it's tax cuts, Republicans are united. If it's putting conservatives onto the bench, Republicans are united. But their other major, major goal, which was uh, repealing the Affordable Care Act, you know, they campaigned against it for a decade. And yet when their chance came <laughs> to eliminate it, they couldn't. They didn't have a majority to do that. And so I, they look unified, but I think it's important. Republicans seem to have a relatively narrow set of issues that they care about. And so the challenge of staying unified, much easier on the Republican side versus the Democrats look at a whole range of issues where they want to make, make change, voting rights, immigration, climate, gun, police reform, right? And it's hard to build and keep large majorities, uh, let alone simple majorities, on a wide range of issues like that. Uh, you, you, you mentioned infrastructure, and I was just thinking how you have some with, within the Democratic coalition who's, who see infrastructure as roads and bridges, and then you have President Biden offering a very uh, robust, more expansive de- definition uh, of, of, of infrastructure, almost a, a social infrastructure as well, and that used to not be part of the infrastructure critique. So some things like that, is that, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we think about the term the president has used, right, he used American Jobs Bill and American, I guess, the Families Act, right, a much broader conception of what it means to do it, what what type of infrastructure, right? It's this human infrastructure, physical infrastructure. Um, But the overlap with Republicans seems to be just about building roads and bridges. the, the, the filibuster, uh, as you already mentioned, is a concept you, that right now in its present form unique to the Senate, does not have constitutional protection. Uh, many see it in its current state as just an obstruction tool for the minority. And while, the, while we're talking about the Democratic majority right now, uh, it, it would be unfair to not say that both sides have used this obstructionist tool. Is it really just a powerful obstructionist tool or is that an oversimplification? Well, it certainly has been used by both political parties, right? We think about uh, George uh, W. Bush in 2005 where he wanted, uh, Republicans wanted to privatize Social Security and Democrats' threats of a filibuster made clear that that wasn't uh, going to happen. Um, and so so there's ample evidence uh, that both parties uh, and coalitions of bipartisan coalitions at times have exploited the filibuster to block things uh, or to, to take things hostage to get the attention to move on another issue. Uh, and sometimes filibustered to kind of more perhaps moderate or uh, change the nature of what the majority wants to accomplish. Looking through um, our contemporary political prism, what is uh, bipartisanship and is can it be achieved in our current political climate? So I, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, one way to think of bipartisanship is that there's some sort of kernel, right? Some sort of ideological sweet spot that both that members of both parties share in common, even if it's a small set of issues. And so 
in that sense, bipartisanship is almost sort of lowest common denominator. It is what is it that's at the core of the parties that they do agree on. But we don't have a lot of issues like that, it seems, anymore, because the parties seem, well, partisan, right? It's sort of team play, my team's for it, so your team's against it. So uh, another way of thinking about bipartisanship is a situation where both parties come to the table and each party gets their most preferred outcome. And they give a little to the other side. They give up a little bit on the issues that they care less about. So um, immigration reform in the Senate in 20, they actually passed bipartisan immigration, comprehensive immigration reform in 2013. How did they get there? Well, it's not that they had a core agreement on all the issues. Instead, Democrats wanted a pact of citizenship for 10 million plus undocumented people in, in the US. Republicans wanted an enormous amount of money spent on border security. And then a group of sort of agriculture interests uh, wanted a guest worker program, let's say for California farm workers. The, each, each of those corners, right, of the triangle got what they wanted. And they let the other side get, get their top priority. And that produced bipartisanship. So bipartisanship really could look either way. And of course, there's a third, what we might call bipartisanship, which is when we just have a majority party agrees to something and they attract just the handful of members from the other side and they call it bipartisan, um, understanding that voters don't really probably care or notice how many, how many members of the opposite party are involved in crafting that. But, but poll after poll, uh, Professor, uh consistently shows that the country wants bipartisanship. At the same time, you don't you can't have bipartisanship if you if you don't have to make tough votes. You know, we were talking about, you know, uh, Senator Manchin coming back and, and he's doing everything he can to not go back to West Virginia and explain his tough votes. And if members of Congress are absolved from making tough decisions, isn't inertia the the most likely outcome? Well, I th- I think that's precisely the issue at stake here in, in the Senate and more broadly, in this case, about, about the filibuster is that it, it prevents, right? And so as a basic matter of accountability, uh, that's that's the problem. We don't know where senators stand. They're not forced to come to the floor and, and take a stand uh, in, the, in the form of votes. And so it's, it's hard to put together bipartisan coalitions if you have a set of rules and a set of political interests that are trying to keep issues from going to the floor uh, in in the first place, um, would you would you uh, explain uh, to our listeners the the process of reconciliation? Uh, sure. So, in the Congressional Budget Act, which was written in the nineteen seventies. There is a process by which uh, Congress sets out the process for how the government is going to write a budget and how it's going to try to keep um, revenues and um, spending um, roughly in, in line with each other. And it lays out a process whereby Congress writes its own a budget blueprint, we call it a resolution. And if Congress wants, in that blueprint, it can give instructions to its committees to come up with savings for the government. Now, those instructions, if the committees want to follow them and then report legislation, that gets put in what we call a reconciliation bill. So committees are given reconciliation instructions. The committees come up with, let's say, we're gonna save money by raising 
taxes. Let's say we're going to cut money out of Medicare spending. It gets knit together in a reconciliation. Reconciliation gets a lot of attention because the budget law itself says you cannot filibuster a reconciliation bill. There's a time limit. It means when you've run through your 20 hours, it's time for a vote, right? You can't filibuster it. So over the years, both parties have realized, wow, we can kind of bend and twist and warp the rules of reconciliation to use it as a vehicle to avoid having uh, to get buy-in from, from the minority party. So the Bush tax cuts, 2001 and 2003, were done in reconciliation. Uh, the Republican tax book cuts under Trump, 2017, uh, were done under parts of the Affordable Care Act uh, in 2010 were done under reconciliation. And of course, the COVID relief plan was done uh, earlier this year under reconciliation, meaning that Democrats could write the bill so long as it sort of complied with the budget rules. Uh, they didn't need uh, to get 60 votes. They could do it with just 50. So we, we've created uh, a scenario uh, whereby uh, almost entrenched partisanship is guaranteed to get any, any kind of major legislation passed. Well, reconciliation, granted, it comes with a lot of kind of limitations on what can go into the package. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, reconciliation is a, is a way for the majority uh, to get something to get something done uh, and circumvent uh, the limitations of the filibuster in the Senate. No, I, I was just thinking uh, uh, that um, the GI Bill uh, was had bipartisan support. Uh, the Civil Act, Civil Rights Act of 1964 had bipartisan support. So we've had these m major pieces of legislation that, that had that, that, that it seems like, as I'm listening to you, it seems like those days are gone. And unless you can have something with reconciliation, you're probably not going to move those kind of major ground-shifting types of pieces of legislation anymore. Well, there uh, yes, but... Of course it's yes, but of course that's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> so got it. Um, even during the Trump years, right, there was a large package of sanctions on uh, on North Korea and on Russia. Uh, the president didn't want to sign it, but there were very large bipartisan majorities for that. The relief bills during 2020, certainly the there were two or three in the month of March, uh, I guess March of 2020, that got overwhelming bipartisan support. Now, Republicans then dragged their heels much of the rest of 2020 until right before the Georgia uh, Senate uh, Senate runoffs. Um, but but the early COVID bills, which spent three you know, three trillion dollars, were, were bipartisan. Um, there's movement. Let's say there's a sort of a China anti uh, sort of a pro sort of industrial policy to improve or make the U.S. more competitive against China that just got a modicum of bipartisan support uh, just last week in the Senate. So there are issues on which the parties seem to think it's in their interest in cooperating, that both parties see it in their interest in cooperating. Mm -hmm. And so we do see bipartisanship on a handful of issues like that. Mm -hmm. But by and large, uh, it does seem that it's very increasingly hard to get that on issues of importance to one party uh, or, or the other. 
Is is that is is that because um, those votes reflect the, the folks back home that that, that we, we we the people as we become increasingly polarized, so too do the people we we send to represent us. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to think about it, right? E, e, the coalitions of the 60s and 70s, the parties look quite different, right? Such that within the Republican Party, there were people, we we had a term, liberal Republicans, right? We don't mm-hmm. have that term anymore because there aren't <laughs> any of them. And of course, we had conservative, real, very conservative Democrats uh, within, within the Democratic Party. So there was much, there was a much bigger political center now, often for ill, right? Blocking civil rights for decades. Uh, that, that was also bipartisan. Um, but today's parties, uh, and as you said, largely reflecting an increasingly partisan electorate, uh, there's nobody in the middle anymore. And the political incentives are to hold out, especially if you think control is just around the corner for your own party. Like, why take half a loaf? Why not hold out for the next Congress when you're in control and either take the whole loaf or no loaf at all. When, when, when you look at, say, beginning, if you, beginning with January 20th, uh, is there anything that has occurred um, that could have not been predicted? In other words, uh, putting on your Notre Dame's cap, uh, could, you, could you see this is probably how Senator Manchin is going to vote. This is probably how Senator Siena is going to vote. Has there been any surprises in that way on these big ticket on these big ticket items? I'm speaking specifically. Um, I mean, from today's vantage point, looking back, I I think Democrats uh, there there wasn't any. I don't think I think there was an expectation that Manchin would vote for the COVID relief plan. And that did happen. But you could imagine that that might not have <laughs> happened, right, if we're in a world of glass, even not half, half full. So, but this is a slim majority, right? An equally divided Senate is always problematic, right? Granted, we don't have very many of them, but they, they, struggle, they struggle to legislate. So um, I think pro- possibly the more surprise is cinema being uh, quite... Uh, quite rigid on the filibuster uh, and saying that she will never uh, to uh, to repeal it, as it were. Um, that was surprising to me, although she has a reputation from her House days as a bit of a moderate, uh, at least in her voting record. So I think it is just this, the difficulties of governing, governing in a polarized and part with very, very slim majorities. And of course, a Republican Party shows very, very little interest in cooperating on, on many of the big issues, of the, even those that poll uh, with 80, 90 percent of public support. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. Why, why is it in your view that that, that no longer matters? If something has 80 percent approval among the voters, it doesn't mean that it can pass Congress. I mean, that that used to move certain centers, but that it didn't have the staying power that it once does. Can, can, can you talk about why, why that is now? So I think what, it varies a little bit by what the issue is. And so something like the uh, in tightening background checks on gun purchases, which polls close to 90, 90%. Now, amongst Republicans, 
Republicans, it probably polls a little less, but I think there's probably majority support for it amongst Republicans. But the intensity of the opponents of it, that intensity in red states is heard quite loudly uh, by Republicans and certainly by Republican senators. And so you and I may look at those opinion polls and say, wow, there's really broad support for acting on this. Republicans may go back at their states and all they hear from are gun owners who say, don't don't touch it. Right. How can you how can you go down that slippery slope? Um, other issues, I think sometimes it's easy the way solutions get portrayed in, in public opinion polls. Um, it's easy to be on one side of it without seeing the nuance. So, um, but so long as the party is, in this case, the Republicans, as long as Republicans go back home and there's no groundswell uh, because perhaps their voters don't care so much about the issue, it's easier for them to dodge, um, dodge and, and not uh, come to the table. And of course, you need Democrats to be on the same page <laughs> as, a, as a party, right, to create pressure on uh, on Republicans to act. You know, one, one of the fascinating aspects of Congress, at least to me, probably no one else thinks this is fascinating, only I probably do, but when, when you uh, um, look at the people in Congress that are the most visible, that we know about, Oftentimes, those are not the same people who are the most effective members of of of, of Congress. I mean, for example, more people know uh, AOC than chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, for example. Your thoughts? Well, we we live in a in a congressional world that's pretty centralized, meaning that party leaders have a fair amount of uh, control. Uh, which means that committee leaders, they tend not to stand out quite so much as, as they used to. But given the political world and world of it's much easier for individual members to strike out and, and create a reputation for themselves, and especially those who are most effective at reaching uh, a broad audience or small audience or a large audience, uh, someone like AOC, who really connects so intensely uh, and is just like completely uh, masterful over that medium, you can really create a following uh, in a way that um, someone like uh, the more elderly, uh, probably not social media savvy uh, chair of the uh, House Ways and Means Committee uh, can ever dream or want uh, uh, to aspire to. Uh, how, how, I mean, do, do you just see us on this trajectory for the foreseeable future that um, we're sort of playing musical chairs uh, with the majority, uh, where, that uh, it's easier to be against something than for something in spite of the bowling, and then it's, it's just, we're just taking turns, uh, and the ultimate goal is gridlock? So I think that's uh, a, a good chance that that's what we see for a while. I, to some extent, it depends on what happens, I think, within the Republican Party, which has gone through these multiple convulsions, right? Uh, the Tea Party, the Freedom Caucus, Donald Trump. I think one question is, where does that party come out uh, if it ever comes out of the, of the sort of hole that they have uh, put themselves in? Um, but absent a, a, usually we say like absent a huge crisis that shakes up 
the public to demand uh, action, it's hard to see the U.S. shaking this sort of very polarized and partisan and electorally competitive uh, system that we're in. It doesn't mean it lasts forever, uh, but for now, it's hard to see an exit uh, out of it. It, it. Would that be true for, for domestic considerations and, and international or, or just domestic? Uh, uh... Well, I think, I mean, my colleagues who study foreign policy will, will say that the demise of the Cold War, right, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and that that, that having a common enemy, as it were, helped unite uh, the parties you, saw, you see a little bit of that on the, the China uh, bill that was on the Senate floor, that both parties uh, see China as a challenge, uh, an economic and a military uh, challenge. Whether that is sufficient to rejigger the lines of domestic politics, probably not. But um, nothing is forever in American politics. <laughs> so we will see what, uh, what comes next. Professor Sarah Binder, George Washington University, Brookings Institution, I want to thank you uh, for giving us your wise counsel on the public morality day. Much, much appreciated. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks for uh, having me. I enjoyed it. Stay tuned as I discuss the newly created Juneteenth holiday with museum curator Susan Anderson on the public morality. Welcome back. On June 19th, 1865, Union soldiers arrived at Galveston, Texas with news that the Civil War had ended and that enslaved Americans were emancipated. It wasn't until Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses Grant at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th, 1865, that regiments began to march toward areas of secession that they had previously uninhabited by Union forces. The time gap between Lee's surrender and the notification that enslaved Americans in Texas were free in mid-June marks what is known today as Juneteenth. Last week, President Joe Biden signed a bill in the law making Juneteenth a national holiday. Joining me to discuss the Juneteenth holiday is Susan Anderson. Anderson is curator at the California African American Museum located in Los Angeles, California. Susan Anderson, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. Um, now, I wanna begin, as a, ch as a child growing up in the 1960s in, in California, I grew up believing that Juneteenth was exclusively a Texas thing that commemorated, commemorated by those African-Americans that originated from the Lone Star State. So what happened? Did I miss something? What happened? Well, um, you mean what happened now that all of us? Um, yeah, it's just, Juneteenth is ubiquitous. Well, as you know, I grew up in California as well, and I didn't grow up knowing about Juneteenth. It wasn't until I was an adult and frankly married a Texan uh, and spent a lot of time in East Texas and uh, getting to know both uh, people and folkways that I began to learn about that particular uh, history. 
But once I had it in my consciousness, when I returned um, after those trips, I did start noticing that there were people in the state of California that were celebrating Juneteenth and, and it kind of got out of roll after a certain point, I would say really starting in the eighties, um, we start seeing more of it in places that weren't Texas. Now, I, I know you, you uh, previously were uh, working in, in Oakland and for a long time, when I was growing up for a very long time, there was an annual, Berkeley had an annual Juneteenth celebration for, for, for at least two decades, you know, and, and everybody, everybody from all over came in, like, like you said, because my family hails from Texas, you couldn't grow up not knowing about Juneteenth. You just, it was just in the blood. Exactly. And that was a major route on the great migration, African-Americans migrating from Texas to California, to, to Oakland, to Bakersfield, to Los Angeles. And Texans uh, had a big influence on, on black culture in California and on California, and as well as uh, civic culture. I mean, Isabel Wilkerson talks about this in her beautiful book, The Warmth of Other Sons. And you can see the influence People like Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Mayor Willie Brown, groundbreaking Mayor Tom Bradley. These are Texas-born people who came and, and had a transformative impact on, on the state of California. Now, you, you mentioned California, so I, I want to have you talk about something that you, that you uh, offered in your wonderful piece for the LA Times. Uh, you wrote from 1849 to 1861, the state of California was as intensely Southern as Mississippi. Explain. Well, I was quoting a white settler, a, a, you know, what people call pioneer, who came to California and wrote a memoir. Uh, and it's an all eyewitness account of his time coming to California in 1848, 1849. And that was his observation. And it's just one example of documentation of what the politics in California were like uh, during the era of slavery. The, uh, all the public institutions in the state of California were dominated by pro-slavery um, pro-Southern elected officials. That was true in the legislature where they were the majority, except for a year or two during the Civil War. It was true for the school system, which for decades actually in the 19th century prohibited uh, Black students from even attending uh, public schools, and then later prohibited them from attending public schools with white students. Uh, and it was true in the court system. Um, the court system was dominated by these kinds of, of, of judges. And until 1863, for instance, African-Americans could not testify in court in California. So a lot of people don't know that. They don't know that Southern, pro-Southern, 
pro-slavery politics dominated California's early history. And that also means that they're not aware of the resistance of the organizing and mobilization of African-Americans during this time in state. Hmm. Uh, is there any way in, in your view uh, for Juneteenth, the Juneteenth holiday, not to succumb to the commodification that's all too common uh, for all US holidays. Is there any way to avoid that or that, that just come with the territory? You get a holiday, it gets commodified. Yeah, I mean, I think that the forces of commercialism in US culture are probably too strong to resist. Um, at the same time, I really feel that Juneteenth might offer us some alternatives to the way that these holidays usually play themselves out. Uh, because the subject matter of Juneteenth has never been the content of any national holiday in the United States. There is no national observance in the United States where the enslavement of African-Americans and the white insistence on enslavement, which is why General Granger was sent to Galveston, is the subject of the holiday. So it, I think Juneteenth actually offers us some remarkable uh, and different opportunities uh, to talk to each other as we commemorate this this uh, uh, holiday every year. Well, st staying with that theme, if if, if, if you could, um, what about the? And I'm sure you've already heard it. You you hear and what is it, at least in my view, what are mischaracterizations of the Juneteenth holiday? For example, um, that was the end of slavery. <laughs> you know, so so these so these mischaracterizations get part. Um, of the, of the larger narrative. Are you concerned about that as well? You're making such a good point, Byron. The mythology surrounding all of this is thick. And, uh, but I do look at the Juneteenth federal holiday as an opportunity for us to stop hearing these lies and telling these lies. You know, the lie that the U.S. Army came to Texas to tell the slaves that they were free. That's not true in the least. And we actually have recorded slave reminiscences, reminiscences of enslaved people who were in Texas at this time who said, we knew exactly what was going on. We knew that the South had lost the war. We knew that there was an emancipation proclamation. Black people and white people in Texas knew exactly what was going on. The United States Army, the government sent the United States Army to Texas to uh, take a stand against the slave owners who continued, uh, especially the cotton planters who continued to coerce black labor. And people don't realize that in the weeks after Juneteenth, after Granger's order number three was proclaimed, more than 10,000 troops were sent to more than 40 outposts in Texas. And if the planters 
had uh, resisted, there would have been another war. There would have been battle fields in Texas. Um, but the U.S. Army was able to prevail. That's the real narrative. Um, and that's what we need to be have a chance to learn now that we have a Juneteenth holiday. Uh, and fi finally, I, I'd be remiss if I, did, I, 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 if I didn't ask you this, that Juneteenth comes at a time, almost at a paradoxical moment, where we see this opportunity that, that, that America um, is acknowledging its incongruence, as, as you've articulated, but it also comes when a number of state legislatures are attempting to make voting more onerous, especially for pe people of color, uh, without any data uh, except for higher voter turnout. Is this a hollow moment that can't be reconciled? How, how, how do you see that? No, to me, it is not. What it, These people are making last-ditch efforts that in the coming years, we will see the, the, the disappearance uh, of these efforts. These people are not going to prevail. They're dinosaurs. They're out of date on top of being racist, no matter how they couch, you know, the, their expression of what they're trying to do with these laws on the state level that restrict voting, they are on their way out. There's no question about it. And when you and I talk again in a couple of years, we'll, we'll see how these efforts are, are waning. To me, the Juneteenth federal holiday is a sign that of, of just the backwardness of, of these efforts in these states and the fact that they're on their way out. Uh, we're going to hold you to that to, to, to bring you back to have that conversation you just articulated. Susan Anderson, thank you for joining me today on The Public Rally. Must appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. You're welcome. The Public Rally welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>